This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Good afternoon. My name is David Monda, and you are listening to a podcast by the CUNY Graduate Center's Gotham Center. Today we'll be discussing a new authored work by a fabulous writer and New York Times journalist, uh, Sam Roberts. The book itself is The History of New York in 27 Buildings. And um, Sam Roberts, uh, welcome aboard. Welcome to our podcast today. David, thank you for having me. Could you begin by telling us a bit about the book? What, What sparked your initial interest in writing this uh, writing this piece, and how, how did the idea come come to you? Well, David, I am a great fan of history, and I think uh, especially as a daily journalist working first for the New York Daily News and now for the Times, I'm always frustrated that we seem to think things are happening for the first time, that they're happening in isolation, when in fact, as you know, uh, we need context, we need perspective. So I like to put history, put that perspective into the stories I write. And I'm a great student of New York history and frankly learn something about it every day. I wrote a book uh, looking at the history of New York through people called Only in New York. And I wrote a book looking at the history of New York through objects called A History of New York in 101 Objects. And I wrote a history of New York looking at one building uh, called Grand Central, uh, a looking at uh, Grand Central Terminal. And then I wondered, could you really pick some arbitrary number of the city's one million buildings and help explain why over 400 years, New York evolved from a struggling Dutch company town into a world capital? And I wanted to write not an architecture book, not a history book, but a book looking at buildings and sort of writing their biographies uh, and bringing history to life and trying to tell some of the story of New York history through those buildings. And that's what I tried to do in A History of New York in 27 Buildings, an arbitrary number, uh, not the history of New York, but just a kind of uh, my history through those those buildings that I picked kind of arbitrarily. The, the criteria were simple. I wanted them to be either transformative or emblematic of some sort of transformation. I wanted them to still exist, which was important. People could go see them. Uh, and I wanted them to be quirky, not the kind of things you would ordinarily find on postcards or tourist guidebooks, things that would be unexpected, things that uh, people would not uh, be find predictable uh, and would provoke people into thinking about the city and thinking about its history 
in a different kind of way. Thank you so much for that introduction. Um, and it's interesting that your book uh, coincided with the 400-year anniversary of, of New York. Um, could you speak a bit to that? You know, what's this correlation sort of in between the time, the space, and these structures? Um, and how are the structures then emblematic of the story of this incredible city over uh, four centuries? Well, it's funny because Winston Churchill said, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. And I think to a great extent that's true. They take on a life of their own. Uh, And we, our buildings are a reflection of who we are as New Yorkers and as a city. Which buildings do we decide to build? Which buildings do we keep? Which buildings do we landmark? Which buildings do we tear down? Why do we uh, build buildings? To what use? Uh, Why do we decorate them the way we do? Uh, We, you know, as New Yorkers really have not cared much about our history. Uh, Witness, of course, Penn Station, uh, that was torn down uh, Mm -hmm. early, uh, early 1960. And, you know, Penn Station didn't die in vain, at least. It gave birth to the landmark law. And as a result of that, uh, as I wrote my Grand Central book, uh, we managed to preserve a lot of buildings since then. And that uh, sort of jump-started the landmark preservation movement around the country. Uh, But even before that, uh, there were plans to tear down City Hall. And City Hall is one of the uh, buildings in my book. And there were other things before that. The original Federal Hall where George Washington was sworn in as the first president of the United States, was torn down uh, in the early 1800s. Instead of being preserved as this great landmark where Mm -hmm. the first Congress met in New York. Now, it's interesting. There is one building in New York that still exists where where a president was inaugurated. But it's now a brownstone with a spice store in it, and nobody knows it even exists. So again, that's a reflection of how we sort of are dismissive of our history. New Yorkers are mostly concerned about the present, uh, to some extent concerned about the future, but we are not really interested in the past. And I think that's a very big mistake. We don't know what our roots are. I remember uh, the Alan Bennett play, The History Boys, uh, one of the kids in the class is asked to define history. Uh, and he stops for a minute and thinks and says, history is just one damn thing after another. Well, you know, that's that's one way of, of looking at it. But I think history is a lot more important than that. I think history, uh, again, tells us who we are, where we came from, and to some extent tells us where we're going. And When you look at our 400-year history in New York, New York is unique. New York was unique among the American colonies. And one of the reasons it was unique was because of our early history. In the early 1600s, we were unique because we were a Dutch colony. And all of the other colonies, the Spanish, the, the French, the English, came to escape religious persecution. They came to proselytize. They Mm -hmm. came for all sorts of other reasons. The Dutch came for one major reason, and that was to make money. 
And you didn't get in their way. You were tolerated. Now, if you want to be a cynic, you could say that wasn't so much tolerance, it was indifference. But it defined New York to the rest of the country, and it defined America to the rest of the world. And I think, you know, our diversity stemmed from that. And it is what has made unique New York unique. Uh, it has created the vibrance uh, that we have as a city to this very day. And uh, it has added to the resilience of this city uh, that has made us come back from uh, some of the great calamities that uh, we've experienced. Could you um, maybe uh, sample for our listeners, uh, maybe uh, three or four uh, buildings, say from the 27, you know, that you highlight in in uh, the history of New York in 27 buildings, um, maybe and just show us some of the differences in terms of, say, the earlier structures to the building boom eras to the 9-11 and maybe the contemporary, um, you know, could you maybe take us through maybe some examples of that? Sure. Uh, the 27, again, were were sort of arbitrary, but but we have Federal Hall, which was built in 1842, uh, and that was on the original site of the first capital of the United States on Wall Street, uh, and it, uh, it was on that hallowed ground uh, that was the first capital where Washington was inaugurated. It then became the Custom House, and people don't realize that the customs collected from the Port of New York uh, basically supported the entire federal government for much of the 19th century. Uh, that was before there was an income tax. And then it became uh, the sub-treasury of the United States, and it was the largest repository of gold in the world. So here you have wow. a of democracy, of commerce, and of capitalism. Uh, and there the building stands uh, right on Wall Street, this beautiful uh, combination of Greek and Roman architecture. Mm. Uh, and again, we sort of take it for granted. People walk by and for the most part, uh, have no idea what it is. Uh, a couple of blocks away is City Hall. It is the oldest functioning city hall uh, in America. Uh, I use the function, the term functioning a little loosely, uh, but there it is from the early uh, 19th century. This beautiful sort of French classical palatial building. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, when you look at it closely, on uh, top of the cupola is the Statue of Justice. Uh, it is one of the few statues of justice that does not have a blindfold on it. Uh, I'm not sure if that means justice is blind <laughs> or not, but uh, it's one of those quirky things about the building uh, that we find interesting. Another one back behind uh, Chamber Street, back of City Hall, is what was called the Marble Palace. Uh, Broadway and Chambers. It was the A.T. Stewart department store. It was the first department store in America, uh, created by this Scotsman, A.T. Stewart. Uh, and he came over from uh, Scotland, again, an immigrant like so many of the people who succeeded here. Uh, and he created this store that uh, was revolutionary. Uh, it then became an office building. It became the headquarters of 
the New York Sun, and it's still there. The Sun clock is still on the corner. It says it shines for all. Uh, and again, people walk by, have no idea of the impact of that building on New York commerce. Uh, across the river, the Domino Sugar Factory. Uh, there it is. The, the sign is missing now because it's being converted into office and residential condominiums just north of the Williamsburg Bridge. But people forget that New York was a giant manufacturing town and something like 90% of the sugar refined in America was refined in New York City, most of it on the Brooklyn waterfront. Uh, and yes. Domino controlled 99% of the market. Uh, wow. People have no sense of that whatsoever. High Bridge, uh, going across the Harlem River, was the oldest bridge linking Manhattan with the mainland. And it was built not for pedestrians, but built to carry uh, the pipes of the Croton uh, water system from upstate uh, into Manhattan. And one of my favorite that people would never notice, except that it's in the book, is a building on uh, Freeman Street and Southern Boulevard in the South Bronx. Uh, it looks pretty innocuous, uh, but it was the site of arguably where the Great Depression began. In December 1930, there was a run on the bank. It was called the Bank of the United States. It was not allowed to be called the Bank of the United States because that sounded too official. So they had to leave out the V. Uh, <laughs> and the run on the bank caused lots of other bank failures. Uh, and today, interestingly enough, it's a laundromat. And in that laundromat is an ATM machine. So today, uh, in 2020, you can get cash out of that ATM machine, whereas in 1930, the bank went bust and you couldn't get any cash at all. So. These are, are sort of quirky little sites in the city that people would never notice unless, you know, they've read this book. Uh, and they sort of tell the story, the narrative story of what New York is all about and how historical it is uh, in a way that I sort of want people to think differently and look around them when they walk around the city and see things in a different light. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, listeners, you are tuned in to a podcast uh, by the Gotham Center and the New Books Network. And today we're speaking with renowned New York Times journalist and author uh, Sam Roberts about his book, A History of New York in 27 Buildings, the 400-Year Untold Story uh, of this great metropolis. Um, 
Sam, so you mentioned there, um, you know, a few excellent examples to speak to uh, the history and the building. Um, speak a bit also to some of the challenges in terms of your narratives of these buildings and some of the sacrifices uh, that were made in terms of um, segregation of communities or breakup of communities or, um, you know, some of the issues, say, around the um, buildings in the 40s, 50s and 60s and how this impacted, for example, uh, communities of color and displaced them. Well, it did, uh, no question about it. Uh, one of the things that fascinated me was was the development of Harlem, which I go into a, in to some extent, and how it became a black community, and it became a black community largely because of uh, a black real estate man uh, who uh, realized that uh, uh, he could develop it and make a great deal of money by providing housing for blacks in that community and driving out whites. And if you look back at the newspaper stories at the time, uh, they are appalling in the way they describe the moving in of blacks at the expense of whites uh, about a sort of race riot in reverse. Uh, you know, you could say, well, read that in the context of the times, but it's uh it really uh, is fascinating how uh, that's considered at the time that it, it, as a black invasion of Harlem, if you will, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. because that was originally a, obviously a white community. Uh, one of the things that I find fascinating too was the development of public housing in New York in the mid 1930s. The first a uh, publicly subsidized housing project in the country was called, appropriately enough, First Houses. Uh, that was on the Lower East Side, and it was very controversial at the time. Uh, should the city, and it was the city, play a role in providing housing for people, subsidized housing? Uh, and it was the city, Mayor LaGuardia, who struck a partnership with FDR and the New Deal Remember, LaGuardia was a Republican, the New Deal Democratic, and both of them in their uh, interest in helping the city, as well as their individual political interest, built these houses. 4,000 people applied for 122 apartments. Uh, they exercised eminent domain to, uh, to uh, uh, take over these properties. And it was interesting because Eleanor Roosevelt, who came to dedicate them, said something that, of course, you probably couldn't get away with saying today, that the success of the project depended in part on how well the tenants took care of these buildings. Uh, and they did. Uh, and some of the tenants uh, actually stayed in the buildings for decades and decades uh, because, you know, this, this was good, solid public housing, uh, low scale, not the the giant projects that were ultimately built later. And of course, because it was low scale and, and built originally, uh, it also proved to be very expensive and difficult to replicate. Um, so some of these things turned out to be fascinating. The IRT powerhouse on 11th Avenue, you think of, you know, so what? This is a generating plant. 
but it was part of the City Beautiful movement. The San Juan Hill neighborhood on the west side there was was kind of a slum uh, minority neighborhood. And uh, the IRT decided to beautify it and built a powerhouse, the facade designed by Stanford White, uh, to help beautify the neighborhood. Uh, again, this was, you know, a generating plant. Why would they care? But it was part of an effort to say, you know, we're putting this in your neighborhood. Uh, it may not be the most desirable uh, public use, but we want to say that we care and we want to make the neighborhood uh, more attractive. And therefore, we're hiring probably the world's most famous architect to make it look better. And they did that. So you can see the power of architecture, the power of placement. Uh, this didn't always work, of course, uh, and the intentions were far from always good. But you see how these things were put in places for a reason. St. Paul's Church uh, was called a church of convenience. Why? Because it was five blocks north of Trinity Church. Now, when it was built, in 1764, five blocks was a lot. So it was a church of convenience because it was much easier for people uptown to get to than to get to Trinity Church five blocks farther downtown. So all of these things that we look at in today's context and sort of take for granted, uh, we don't stop to think why they were put there originally and for the most part, they were not arbitrary reasons. Uh, you look at uh, Stuyvesant Street, which is in the book as well. Stuyvesant Street, which defies yes. the Manhattan grid. Uh, the Manhattan grid, uh, one of the, the basic profound documents that defined New York City when it was laid out in 1811 by the street commissioners. Stuyvesant Street is one of the very few streets in Manhattan that defies that grid, it goes directly east-west. The grid itself, people don't realize, is about 17 degrees off the compass axis because it is really uh, perpendicular to the rivers, not directly east-west. But Peter Stuyvesant and his descendants, who owned the Stuyvesant farm, the Bowery, had enough clout to say, we want to keep this street the way it is. We don't want it to go along with the rest of the grid, and they succeeded because they had the political power at the time to keep their street uh, east-west. And, you know, you see what political power was like even back then in the early 19th century, uh, that they were able to keep their street, that one street, a couple of blocks, uh, defying the entire grid that went from what is now Houston Street, all the way up to 155th Street. So all of these things tell little stories about New York uh, and how it developed and why it developed and the use of power and the influence of people. Uh, and, you know, as Bob Caro said in The Power Broker, uh, the real test of power is, is how it's exercised both uh, on behalf of the powerful and on behalf of the powerless. And you know, you can tell that story through all sorts of means. And one of the ways I tried to tell it in this book is through uh, buildings that were built and buildings that were torn down and uh, 
and buildings that were preserved. Oh, fantastic. Um, and you also mentioned in your book, you talk about uh, the high bridge, the oldest standing bridge linking Manhattan to the U.S. mainland. Um, what's, what's its significance? Um, I mean, obviously, aside from uh, that umbilical connection of, of, of the island to the rest of the country, um, in terms of, because people don't always look at um, bridges in the context of, of buildings, the way they'd see some of the other iconic structures, the Flatiron Building or the uh, you know, or, or the World Trade Center, the former Twin Towers, or Freedom Tower today. Um, could you speak a bit to that, in some somewhat in terms of that specific significance of of Highbridge? Sure, I, David. I have to admit, I cheated a little bit on on the definition of buildings. Uh, I included the Coney Island Boardwalk because I thought yes. it was very important to the city because it democratized the beach. Uh, the beach was until you know, the early 20th century, the province of the rich. It was largely private property, which was opened up uh, by the subway system and by the boardwalk and the state legislature, which decided it should be open to the public. And Highbridge uh, had enormous significance uh, because it brought water to the city. And when you look at uh, some of the major developments in the city, and these were all things, you know, that were built by the city without any federal help, without uh, any other public works help. You look at uh, at the street system, uh, which was which was rife with patronage from the Tweed Ring, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. whatever money they made off it, they got it done. Uh, when you look at the Erie Canal, which made New York the premier maritime port in the country, and when you look yes. at at the Croton water system, which the city built all by itself because uh, the water system was, was totally uh, stagnant and, and coming from you know wells that were totally polluted, that water system made the city. The city needed that water system because there were epidemics that were killing people and there were fires that were destroying the city. So that Croton water system was absolutely vital to the city. It got built in record time. And the viaducts, the the aqueducts that carried that water from upper Westchester in the reservoirs that were created for it uh, came across High Bridge into Manhattan. So that was absolutely vital. And And again, you know, people just don't realize the impact of those structures. Another one that uh, that is still sitting there today, and again, in the book, I picked things that still exist, the American Banknote Building in the Bronx, one of my yes. favorite. There in the South Bronx, the poorest district, the poorest congressional district in the country was this manufacturing plant until the 1980s that was churning out billions and billions and billions of dollars in currency. Uh, as a printing plant, as a currency printing plant, and virtually nobody knew it was there. And they're smack in the middle of this poor district with the highest percentage of people in poverty and collecting food stamps, which, by the way, were printed there. Uh, and nobody knew that this giant source of wealth was sitting right in the middle of that district. 
So all of these things, these ironies, uh, I just find fascinating. And that's why I find history so fascinating that, you know, sometimes in school we think of it as as memorizing dates and places uh, and events by rote. Uh, but when you get into the storytelling of history, uh, that's what it's really all about. And and I think that is how we ought to teach it. And that is how we, we ought to learn it. And uh, thank you again for that. Um, and then you also alluded, you know, you mentioned the Coney Island Broadwalk um, and its democratization of that space. Um, you know, what, from me, from your research, what kind of um, uh, information did you gather in terms of, the, you know, the, the should I'm sure there was significant uh, resistance from property developers, from property owners out there about bringing, um, you know, uh, the, so many other people into the area. Um, could you speak a bit to that? Yeah, David, you're absolutely right. I mean, there was originally a toll bridge uh, that separated Brooklyn from Coney Island, Gravesend, uh, to keep people out. Uh, Manhattan Beach, uh, uh, that whole area was a playground of the rich, racetracks, uh, hotels that wouldn't allow Jews in, much less blacks. Uh, and the railroad uh, brought people to the resorts there, but it was the subway system ultimately, at the beginning of the 19th century, and then the boardwalk in the teens and early 20s uh, that opened that up to people uh, from the rest of the city uh, and really did democratize it because it meant that people from all over the city could go to the beach. And, you know, frankly, there aren't that many cities in the world that make a beach that accessible to everyone. Uh, and mm -hmm. make it, uh, that easy to get to and make it free. So that was a very important thing in the development of New York City and uh, the appeal to immigrants as well. Uh, in the summer, it did and does get very hot in New York. And remember, this was before air conditioning. And yet anyone could, uh, for a nickel, get on the subway and go to the beach and go to the boardwalk go swimming and not have to pay a dime. Uh, and that was a very important thing in terms of saying this city is open to everyone, uh, regardless of race, creed, color, religion, anything else. Uh, and it wasn't that way before the 20th century. And uh, buildings have a lot to do with city management and the organization of public and private spaces there's this strong correlation between city leadership and buildings. Um, from the history of New York mayors, who or what group of mayors, are there one or two or three mayors, you'd say, from LaGuardia, David Dinkins, uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, Cuomo to uh, Del Blasio today, that have been either significantly helped or you know, been uh, nonchalant in terms of building? Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, uh, when you look back at the 1916 uh, zoning resolution, which really changed things a great deal and, and led to the wedding cake uh, building, said you can't, you know, uh, build real bulky buildings in every block, uh, whether that was the result of the mayor or that was a result of, of architects and, and urban planners. Uh, but you can see that, that mayors 
can make a difference. And, and you can see that in the current administration as well under Mayor de Blasio. And, and it's a tough way of reconciling priorities. People don't want more density for the most part in the neighborhood, but they also want more affordable housing. Well, you know, where do you build it and how do you build it? Almost the only way to build things in this city when we have a finite amount of land and we don't annex additional land like cities do in the South and the West is to go up. Uh, and to create more density and to fill in uh, spaces that are now vacant. So when the mayor or the city council want to upzone, as they call it, uh, places like East New York, uh, then to enable developers to build more affordable housing by creating more apartments uh, and therefore getting more bang for their buck, the people who live there now say, wait a minute, we don't want more density. So those are tough things to reconcile for any politician uh, to, you know, meet both agendas. Uh, and it's very tough to explain to people uh, when they live there uh, how uh, both uh, goals come into conflict and how to resolve them. So, you know, these are the difficulties of, of being in any urban environment. and. You know, so far, I don't think any mayor has really been able to overcome that uh, in an effective way. And I know this is a tough question, but uh, of the 27 buildings you picked, uh, you know, is there one or two that's your own personal favorite? Well, I think, you know, if there's any favorite building in New York, and this is, you know, probably the most famous one, and I had to include it. even though it is famous, it's the Empire State Building. Uh, yes. It is beautiful. It was built during the Depression as a sign of faith. Uh, and, you know, you, you look at the, the film, uh, A Night to Remember, An Affair to Remember, and, and there is Deborah Kerr sailing up the, the Hudson, uh, and she agrees to meet on top of the Empire State Building, and she says, it's the closest thing to heaven that we have. <laughs> well, I, I think we could all agree that that's true. Fantastic. Um, Sam, uh, how is this book, um, A History of New York in 27 Buildings, how is it different? How was the experience different in writing this book than some of your other work, Only in New York, A History of New York in 101 Objects, or... The kind of, uh, a kind of genius, uh, Herb uh, Sturz. Uh, how was the experience of writing this one, you know, different from some of the other uh, books you've written? Well, in, in a way, you know, as I mentioned earlier, David, uh, the objects tried to tell a story of New York through uh, quirky objects. The, the Grand Central book looked at one building, only in New York tried to tell the story of the city through people. Uh, and here I, I looked at some combination of, of buildings, and I have to admit the reason there are 27 is because I lost count. Uh, there were supposed to be 25, <laughs> uh, and I just got carried away. Uh, but could this collection, this random, if you will, collection of buildings sort of capture the essence of, of the city and its history? 
Uh, and again, you know, it, it doesn't pretend to be inclusive, uh, a sort of snapshot, a, a, a general sense and impression. Uh, but that's what I tried to do and let people, the idea was to provoke, provoke people into thinking of what their own would be, that uh, to go around their own neighborhood to say, how could you have left out uh, the Chrysler building? Or, you mm -hmm. know, why didn't you include such and such? To provoke people into thinking about their city and history in different ways. Then that was the goal. And, uh, you know, I just hope that that's what I've accomplished. Oh, thank you so much for that. Um, and how, how was your book, how was this book, uh, History of New York in 27 Buildings, how was it received? Did it meet your expectations? Was it what you expected? Was it overwhelming? What you know? What was your um, your your experience in terms of how the book was received? Well, I, I really, David, I leave that to others. Uh, you know, I hope people like to read it. I hope they enjoyed it. Uh, and most of all, as I say, I hope it provoked people into thinking differently. Uh, both about the city and about history, that, that history is interesting, that history is storytelling, that history is a narrative, uh, that history, whether it's about things that uh, people consider inanimate objects or, or people uh, or artifacts or ephemera, uh, are ways of telling stories. And uh, each object uh, has something in it uh, that that uh, tells something about us because most of these things are are things that we have we people have created and that's why I also wanted to include things that are still around that people can touch that people can see that people can grasp uh, and just walk around the city uh, and see them for themselves and see what I left out see what they would include uh, and come up with their own vision of what they think New York history should be and how meaningful it is and what it means for today and for their own future. Oh, fantastic. And uh, sort of in closing, as we uh, come to the end of, uh, of our podcast, um, what other works are you thinking of in the near term? Are they related to... Um, to a history of New York in 27 buildings? Are you uh, looking to write uh, other projects on other areas? There's a big concern currently around public health uh, issues and big metropolis like New York and how diseases spread. There's obviously the constant threat of um, uh, terrorism. Uh, what, are, what are some of your sort of future projects or are you even thinking along those lines? Oh, I, I'm more than thinking I'm overdue on several books. Uh, one of the books I'm writing uh, is a history of New York told through uh, a number of people, uh, most of whom uh, my readers probably have not heard of, uh, and trying, like through buildings, to tell the story of the city, the 400-year story of the city through them, and of course, I welcome uh, anyone suggesting any candidates for that. And another one is looking at the New York of Jacob Rees in the late 19th century and trying to compare 
Uh, many of the problems we face today, whether it's uh, poverty, homelessness, crime, uh, the consequences of immigration, uh, and try and look at how those uh, those issues relate to the way they uh, were dealt with and the consequences of them back in the time that Reese wrote about them and photographed them uh, compared to uh, the way we're dealing with them today. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sam Roberts, New York Times journalist and author of A History of New York in 27 Buildings. Uh, this is David Monda signing off for the Gotham Center and the New Books Network. Uh, please feel free to visit our website at the GothamCenter.org where you will be able to review this live stream and get in touch with uh, Sam Roberts and myself. Again, um, stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you.